Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 880. Good to be back this morning after being gone last week, and since it's been a couple weeks, give a quick refresher or provide context in case you haven't been with us recently. Uh, after spending three years traveling around, teaching, and performing miracles, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem in fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and his entrance inspired celebration among his followers, and it inspired hostility among his enemies. And he has spent the last few days debating back and forth with the Jewish religious leaders in the temple. And of course, Jesus has already predicted more than once that he is ultimately going to be rejected and killed before rising again on the third day. But this morning, in, in his final recorded address of his public ministry, Jesus is going to warn about coming judgment, both in the short term and in the long term. And so we are in Luke chapter 21, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 5. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance you will gain your lives. And so last time Jesus warned the people about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and he commended the actions of a poor widow for demonstrating total commitment to the kingdom of God. And now as we pick up again here in verse 5, Jesus overhears some people commenting on the beauty of the temple. Now, at this point in time, the temple in Jerusalem was truly breathtaking. 
Right, back at the, the time of the exiles, the original temple that had been built by Solomon was completely destroyed. Then when it was rebuilt, it was nowhere near as impressive as the original had been. Well, fast forward to the, to the reign of Herod the Great, coming up to the first century. Uh, the Jews hated Herod. Uh, they rejected him as their king because he wasn't Jewish. You can't be the Jewish king if you're not Jewish. And so in a, in a, a gesture of goodwill towards the people, Herod invested a ton of money to enlarge and beautify the temple. And, uh, and it took over 45 years, but by all accounts, it was magnificent. Uh, it was not technically considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, but by some accounts, it was even better than some of them were. It had massive columns made of pure white marble and, and intricate wood and, and metal workings for, for decoration, curtains and carpets made of the finest fabrics available, and it was covered in gold and silver so that if the sun hit it just right, it would reflect the light and it could be seen for miles around. So these people are understandably gazing at the temple and appreciating its beauty. But in response, Jesus essentially tells them that they need to take a good look because it's not going to be around for much longer. In fact, he declares that a day is coming when one stone won't be left on top of another. And now, Jesus has already predicted the destruction of Jerusalem back in chapter 19, uh, but this statement about the temple would still be shocking to hear. The temple is the center of, of Jewish life. And not only that, many of the stones that were used to build the temple literally weighed hundreds of tons. All right, this isn't something that's just going to blow over if someone sneezes too hard close by. The temple was built to be a permanent structure, but Jesus declares that it won't be. And so in verse 7, as, as people hear Jesus make this prediction, they ask him when this is going to happen and, and how they'll know that it's about to happen. But interestingly, Jesus starts by giving a series of developments that don't indicate that it's about to happen. And he warns them not to be led astray by these false signs. And so first of all, in verse 8, he warns that there will be many who come in his name. And this can have a, a dual meaning. And on the one hand, to come in Jesus' name can mean that someone comes pretending to be him, or, or, or the Messiah in general, uh, claiming to uh, to be the Messiah that they have been waiting for. In another context, to come in Jesus' name means that someone shows up claiming to have been sent by Jesus, sort of like a prophet. And so these people are going to try to convince others to listen to and follow them. But Jesus says to ignore them. And then secondly, Jesus says that there will be wars and tumults, political crises. But he calls the disciples not to be terrified because they still don't mean that the time of judgment has come. And over the next few verses, he includes natural disasters and famines and epidemics. There are going to be terrors and signs from heaven, right? strange and, and even unexplainable things that are happening. And, and all of these situations are things that we might naturally interpret as signs of God's judgment, especially when they're all happening at the same time. But Jesus says that all of them have to happen before the actual time of judgment comes. And so he says, don't get caught up in any of it. Then in verse 12, Jesus explains that during this time, the disciples will endure persecution. 
being placed on trial in synagogues and before kings and governors because of their loyalty to him. And he tells them that these occasions will provide them with opportunities to bear witness about who he is and what he has done. And and interestingly, Jesus gives instructions not to think about what they're going to say in defense or, or try to plan how they're going to respond. He promises that when the time comes to stand and give an account, he will supernaturally give them exactly what they need to say. And of course, as we went through the book of Acts a few years ago, we saw the fulfillment of this promise as the early church faced persecution across the ancient world, and yet the gospel continued to spread. Now, we should notice here that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things, right? He's clear that following him will be costly. His disciples will be betrayed by even their closest human relationships, and some will even be put to death for refusing to deny him. He summarizes it by saying that disciples will be hated by all because of their faith in him, but he also promises that not a hair on your head will perish. That's a confusing expression for some people. Obviously, Jesus just said that many Christians are going to be put to death because of their faith, so obviously this doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to them. And it should probably go without saying that this also doesn't mean that some of you are going to be killed, but man, your hair is going to look great in the process, right? No, and this expression, the point of it, is that our lives are in God's hands. Nothing ever happens to us apart from his will. And, and everything, in, when we exit this life and enter eternity, everything is going to be perfectly fine, far better, in fact, than we could possibly imagine. You see, our our focus and our preoccupation with this life, this physical, temporary life, can be so intense that the thought of death is intimidating, and the enemies of God will try to use that against disciples of Jesus. But if we could understand how glorious eternity, eternity with the Lord is going to be, it would make the worst experiences of this life look like nothing in comparison. And so if necessary, disciples can give their lives up for the Lord in perfect confidence that they are not actually losing anything. Every sacrifice will be more than made up for in heaven. Then Jesus ends this section in verse 19 by emphasizing that by your endurance you will gain your lives. Of course, this is not in any way to say that we are saved by what we do, because we already know that we are saved by what Jesus has done for us. The point here, as we've seen many times before, is that true faith perseveres. It endures across the, the span of our lives and even the most difficult circumstances. And Jesus reminds his followers that genuine discipleship requires faithfulness to him even under intense pressure. So Jesus has explained a variety of things that don't mean that the time of judgment has come, but now he's going to explain how to know when judgment is about to happen as we pick up again beginning in verse 20. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So picking up again in verse 20, Jesus finally gets to what will signal that the judgment against Jerusalem has come. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And when this happens, he warns everyone to get out of town. He says, go to the mountains. Uh, don't, don't try to come into the city. You see, in, in the ancient world, in the event of a, of a coming battle, the natural inclination would be to run into the city because the city is fortified against attack while the outside areas are exposed and vulnerable. But we see here, this is actually the exact opposite of what you want to do in this case. All right, the city is going to be completely destroyed. So pretty much anywhere other than the city is going to be a better option if you want to survive. And again, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things. He says that these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. All right, this destruction is going to be nothing less than an act of divine judgment against Israel for rejecting the Son of God. He talks about the, di the extra difficulties for those who have young children at the time. There's going to be distress. Many will fall by the edge of the sword and others will be led captive among all nations. And of course, as we talked about back in chapter 19, this prophecy came to fulfillment when the Romans completely destroyed the temple and Jerusalem as a whole in the year 70. And when it happened, the historical record estimates that a million Jews were killed in Jerusalem and that another 500,000 were taken and sent into slavery around different areas of the world. It was everything that Jesus said it would be. Then we come to verses 25 through 28, which are the most debated verses in the Gospels. Uh, the question is whether Jesus is still talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem here, or whether he is pointing forward beyond the destruction of Jerusalem, to the time of his second coming and the judgment that happens at the end of time. And we don't have time to hash it all out here. Uh, we will have plenty to talk about tonight at Q&A if you're interested. Uh, but there are, there are good reasons to support both options. Both options have, have difficulties that are hard to explain. And ultimately, I think there's actually a lot of overlap between the two. There are, there are aspects of what happens before the destruction of Jerusalem that will also be at play before the second coming of Jesus. But on the whole, I think that Jesus is pointing forward here beyond the destruction of Jerusalem 
uh, to His second coming and the judgment that will happen then. As Jesus describes it, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and, and the roaring in the oceans. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, there are going to be ominous and unexplainable things that are happening. And he says that there will be mass confusion about what's happening and why. In verse 27, Jesus reveals that, that then people will see him fulfilling the role of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, coming in a cloud with power and great glory to judge his enemies and to establish his kingdom forever. And so when these things begin to take place, he calls his disciples to straighten up and raise their heads because they will know that the time of their redemption has come near. He wants them to have confidence in the face of these difficulties. And so to, to borrow an illustration from one of my favorite Bible scholars, if you were in occupied Europe during World War II, but you heard that the Allies were on their way, then you knew that things were about to get really bad, right? Your, your, your town is going to probably be demolished. There's going to be bombs and tanks and gunfire, but you also know that it's only through those events that you will ultimately be set free from the captivity of the Nazis, right? These things have to happen in order for you to be delivered. And in a similar way, there's going to be some crazy stuff that the church has to live through towards the end of the world. But Jesus is telling the disciples this beforehand so that they understand that as things get crazier, it simply means that our salvation is coming closer. So now Jesus has explained the signs accompanying the destruction of Jerusalem and probably the end of the world, and he'll conclude his teaching as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so picking up again in verse 29, Jesus comes back to the immediate future, and he tells a brief parable. He points to the fig tree, and, and he points out that you can tell when the branches begin to bloom that summer is coming. Right? It's a guaranteed sign. And in the same way, when all of the things that he's talking about here begin to take place, the disciples will know that the time for judgment has come. Then he assures them that this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And so 40 years later, when the Romans finally did destroy Jerusalem, many of the people listening to Jesus at this moment were still alive to remember that he said this and to recognize that what he said 
was true. And in verse 33, he doubles down when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus claims that his words are eternal and true. And in so doing, he once again implies that he is divine because only God's words can truly be described in that way. He insists that we can believe and build our lives on what he says. And then finally, Jesus issues a warning for his disciples to watch themselves, lest they get caught up with the distractions and cares of this life and fail to pay attention, miss the signs, and end up being destroyed with everyone else. As we've seen earlier in the story, we don't want to live our lives paranoid, but we do need to stay alert and be disciplined. And then Luke finishes the passage by noting that Jesus continued to teach in the temple by day, and then he would go out to the Mount of Olives to spend the night. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus warns of coming judgment, both in the short term and in the long term. And certainly parts of the passage are are difficult to understand with perfect clarity, Uh, but as we take time to reflect on the application of this passage for our lives today, I want us to focus on what is perfectly clear. Jesus promises here that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. And and it did. We know this, that in AD 70, his his prediction came true. But he has also promised that he is coming again at the end of time to execute judgment again in a a bigger and much more far-reaching scale. And there are a variety of ways that we may need to respond in light of that. And so first of all, judgment is coming, so we need to take refuge in Christ. It's it's the greatest irony of all time, and, and something that only God's providence could bring about, that the very thing that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment of the Jewish people, is the same thing that makes salvation from judgment available. It is the death of Jesus on the cross that paid the divine penalty for our sins so that we can be spared from God's judgment. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that we are so glad that you're here. And and I've been a pastor long enough to know that people come to church for all different kinds of reasons, and there are all kinds of different understandings of of why churches exist. But I just want to be upfront with you and telling you that we've got nothing to offer you apart from the gospel. The gospel has tons of implications for our lives. We're going to talk about some of them here in just a moment. But, but none of those things have any real meaning apart from an active faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of what Jesus has done for us is the foundation of everything that we believe and do. And so you need to understand this morning that judgment is coming. And that we deserve to receive it for all of the ways that we have rebelled against God in our lives. And yet God has made salvation available by sending Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins in our place. So that if we will repent and turn from our sin and put all of our hope in what Jesus has done to save us, then God will forgive us. He will give us new life and he will bring us into his spiritual family the church. And so consider that this morning. 
Beyond that, there are other ways that this text applies to us. And so we're just going to take them roughly in the order of their appearance in the text. So first of all, judgment is coming, but we want to avoid imposters and false alarms. Jesus warns here that false prophets will come in his name, pretending to be him or, or predicting when the end of the world will come. And of course, we've dealt with this several times before, so I'm not going to spend extended time on it other than stating a reminder that nobody knows when the world is going to end, and everybody will know when it does end. And so we don't need to pay any attention uh, to people who try to convince us otherwise. Don't listen to them, don't give them your money, and certainly don't act on anything that they say. Next, judgment is coming, and so we need to bear witness to Jesus. Right? In this passage, Jesus calls his disciples to be willing to give up their lives. to to persevere in the midst of difficulty and to trust him to speak through us under intense pressure. But most of us, if we're honest, are afraid even to talk to our friends and family about the gospel in just regular, everyday conversation. I mean, forget about going to prison or, or facing execution. We don't even want people to look at us weird. Church, our Lord has given us a great commission And people don't become Christians apart from understanding and responding to the gospel message. And so we need to be faithful to share it as the Lord gives us opportunities. Also, judgment is coming. And in Jesus' words in verse 9, we should not be terrified. A fellow pastor pointed out to me this week that, that our lack of fear or anxiety or anger, or or other extreme emotional response to the current events of our day is part of our witness as believers. I'm going to say that again. Our lack of fear, or anxiety, or anger, or other extreme emotional response to the things that are happening around us, the current events of our day, is part of our witness as believers. You see, when we respond to to current events and what's happening in our world in the same way as everybody else, then the gospel hope we have been given is hidden, and people can't see it. In his first letter, Peter calls us to always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope we have. But if people don't detect that we have any hope, then that's never a question we're going to have to answer. So consider, how do you respond to headline news from day to day? What do your social media posts look like? Do you display a quiet confidence in God's providence over all things? Or do you get caught up in all of the hysteria? I think many of us need to spend some time rereading this passage and asking the Lord to recalibrate our minds and our hearts to to respond to the craziness of our world in ways that are in line with his word. Finally, judgment is coming, and so we need to stay alert, as Jesus tells us at the end of this passage. You see, so many people, including professing Christians, simply go through life floating along, caught up in their their jobs and children's activities and trying to keep up with the Joneses and distracted by all of the things of this world and not living 
as if what Jesus says here is really true. We have to remember that this life is ultimately about the life to come. And as Christians, we are called to be prepared and to help other people prepare for that. Friends, we need to remember that discipleship is not simply about showing up once a week on Sunday. It's about living every single day of our lives for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. And so the way that we work, the way that we relate to our friends and family, the, the, the activities that we take part in, all of our lives should be influenced by our faith in Jesus and should be done in conformity to his word. Right, we don't try to squeeze Jesus somewhere into our schedule if we can find a, a convenient time. Now, Jesus must set the agenda for our entire lives, and apart from that, we really can't call ourselves disciples in any meaningful way. We live our lives for the life to come. Church, this morning we are reminded that judgment is coming, but God has made a way for us to be saved by sending his Son. And so let's take refuge in Christ this morning, and let's live our lives faithfully for him as we look to that day. Let's pray together.